And welcome to the Citizens of Nastown podcast. I'm your host, TJ Landermeyer. With me as always, Sean Hogan. Hello. James O'Hara. Hey. All right. How are you guys doing? Doing pretty well. Same. Uh, all things considered in terms of you know, having a team blown up, probably not the worst worst way that's ever happened now. So. Yeah. So, I mean, my thought is uh, let's go ahead and just jump right into it. Uh, the... The destruction started on Thursday evening. Uh, technically, the destruction started the previous weekend when they got swept by the Orioles. That's fair. <laughs> that's it. That's when it was set in stone. That was when it. Uh, this one's over. It's, doesn't matter how shitty this division is. We have no chance when you're <laughs> getting swept by the Orioles. Yeah. Yeah. Not great. <clears throat> Which put them back seven and a half games, eight and a half games at that yeah, point. Uh, yeah. Okay. So the thought was always that Scherzer would be likely to go if that were the case. More recently, they started talking about Turner being somebody that you could possibly move as well um, because they haven't been able to extend him. And then he's coming up to be a free agent next year. So now is the time when you're going to get something for him. Um, mm-hmm. If you want to go ahead and do that. And I mean, I'm, I'm not opposed to that thinking. You have a guy who's uh, his speed is a significant factor in his batting. Yeah. He's a good hitter. Don't get me wrong. But like what happens when he loses half a step, let alone a step to that batting average. And also right. he's going to be a free agent at 30. I don't want any part of that $300 million deal at age 34, 35. Yeah. And he's the only elite shortstop that's going to be a free agent next off, like the off season after this. Whereas this upcoming one, there's Corey Seager, Trevor story, Carlos Correa, Semyon, Baez, Chris Taylor. So if my hope is that Rizzo's being smart and he's going to say, okay, well I can go get one of these guys and drive the price down a little bit. Uh, you know, because there's so many guys out there, you know, I can get somebody for cheaper rather than bid against everybody in the universe for Trey when the next best uh, shortstop is Dansby Swanson. Yeah, yeah, I think it's something we actually did talk about in the last podcast is that, you know, Trey was going to be their only chip that wasn't on an expiring contract. Uh, and teams have been and especially this deadline really we're paying an extra premium to get one extra year rather than just a couple months because it does it as a GM it's a lot easier to say oh if I trade for this rental and then I don't make the playoffs or I trade for this rental and I lose in the NLDS or the ALDS or whatever you know and I don't even get close to the World Series I'm gonna look like a giant idiot who you know, regardless I'm gonna people are already gonna think I'm look dumb and then if the prospect I traded for that rental explodes and does well. I'm going to look like this huge idiot who traded this great future star to not even make it anywhere in the playoffs. So it's a lot easier for them to say, all right, well, I'll get two months of them for my playoff runs this year. And I have one extra year and maybe the next year we do better, or maybe in the one extra year, they're a huge all-star and everybody's excited about having an all-star on their team. Remember, you know, Maybe next year we do badly, but now I have this trade chip I can try to sell off as a rental and get some value back to us that, you know, maybe that one guy I traded away becomes a star, but now I have a future star here on my own that I can say, hey, you know, it all washed up. Who cares, guys? Um, 
So it, it really was, you know, if they were going to try to go for this rebuild, the, the other issue I think we talked about last time as well is that Trey Turner really doesn't line up well with the rest of the team. Because the team was very split into you had the older generation, people around Ryan Zimmerman, Max Scherzer's age, you know, people who, if you were even to re-sign them, would be very short-term deals. And then alongside those guys, guys like Josh Harrison, Jan Gomes, you know, a lot of these kind of older players, Gerardo Parra, that they kind of found out, of, you know, off the waiver wire, El Viejos, like they called him in 2019. And then back the other way, you had Juan Soto starring at, 22, along with Victor Robles, who's, you know, I think, 23. And then you had two people who were, you know, top 100 prospects, middle infielders slash quarter infielders, and Luis Garcia and Carter Keboom, who have graduated, uh, still haven't quite stuck in the majors yet, but, you know, they're also in that age group. Uh, so it's really, a, and the way their contracts worked out is, they were still going to have Patrick Corbin's contract for three more years, but he would have come off right when Juan Soto would become a free agent. So you'd have this extra money unlocked, but for Trey Turner, you still would have had Corbin's big contract. You still would have had Strasburg's big contract for a while. You would have still had made the deferral some Scherzer if that mattered. It shouldn't, but you know, it, it was easier to kind of see how you can line up. And Juan Soto is just so much better of a player than Trey Turner is that you can see how it lines up better to build to Juan Soto, you know, having competing two years from now, re-signing him back, and then having, you know, a good six, seven years of all of these young guys who are close in age with him, all kind of competing as a core together, you know, similar to the team they had, you know, starting in 2012 when, you know, Bryce Harper, Jordan Zimmerman, Gio Gonzalez, Steven Strasburg, Ian Desmond, Danny Espinosa, uh, you know, and some of those, and Wilson Ramos, you know, some of those guys didn't end up in Drew Storen and, and Tyler Clippard. You know, they had all these guys that were very close in age. Some of them did not work out quite as well as the other ones. Uh, some of them were only good in 2012, and then that was it. Uh, but it, it's still, that's kind of the idea that they're clearly building to here. Uh, I don't know if they have quite as many of the, the pieces. Uh, you don't, unfortunately, have you know very clear future superstars in the you know in your draft pool or sorry in your prospect pool because you don't have Steve, you didn't draft Steven Strasburg recently. You didn't draft a Bryce Harper recently. You don't even really have an Anthony Rendon from the 2011 draft you know sitting there as well. Uh, so that's going to be the real challenge for the Nets, I think going forward is what they can get out of these guys they traded for and how much can they put on one Soto's shoulders? And then how much can they get Keyboom Robles and Garcia rolling and actually being key members of the team and not just kind of disappointments as they have been so far. All right. So let's, uh, let's start at the top. <clears throat> the first trade that went down was uh, Turner and Scherzer for where did my thing go? It's Josiah Gray. Jojo Gray. And he told reporters that he prefers to be called Jojo. I like that much better. I like it's very fun. Rolls rolls off the tongue. I like it. Um where is this trade? Oh, because it wasn't actually until the 31st. That's right. Mm-hmm. Or the right. 31st. It was the first first announced, last to be finalized. Yeah, actually second to last to be finalized. Yeah. Yeah. The last one was a true Christmas gift. 
<laughs> no, uh, no spoilers. <laughs> so if you uh, want, I can I can go through uh, go through the list, TJ. Yeah, go for it. All right, so JoJo. Uh, so I guess Fangraphs has him as a fifty-five future future value guy. So that's a number two, number three starter on a playoff team, making his Nats debut tonight. As of now, doing pretty good. We'll see how it goes. Uh, he was a shortstop convert. Uh, he uh, moved while he was in college, and he's only been pitching full time since twenty eighteen. Uh, but has kind of surprisingly advanced command and control for someone that's not been pitching that long. Um, uh, his fastball is known for having a good rise in movement, but he's actually been uh, very homer prone on it this year, but he's never had issues with it before. So um, he had some shoulder issues earlier in the year. So I am kind of wondering if it's, well, A, either small sample size or B, just, you know, stuff playing down while he's trying to pitch through an injury or something. Um, and then, you know, excellent raw secondary stuff. He continue to hone it, you know, turn into an all-star. But, you know, he's already close or he's already, you know, in the majors and, you know, he'll have some growing pains, but, uh, you know, close to being, you know, a real contributor. You know, it's not going to be three years before, well, knock on wood, but won't be three years before we have to wait for him to, like, really be useful. Yeah. It definitely sounded to me like kind of a where with rose-colored glasses you would have seen Eric Fetty or and Joe Ross, the stage you would have wanted them to be at, but when they first came up, um, and it, neither of them quite got to that level. Uh, you know, Fetty just kind of the whole package. He just doesn't know how to use his pitches yet. Uh, you know, and, and Joe Ross never could seem to develop a third mm-hmm. pitch to go with his good, uh, you know, fastball slider. I think. Yeah. Um, so is that Gray has the pit has the three pit, you know, the numbers of pitches you need to be a starting pitcher knows how to throw them fairly well, can come up with a plan of attack and sort of follow it. Actually, um, you know, as we're seeing in the start he's had so far today, you know, he knows what he's throwing. He knows where he's throwing it. It's not always necessarily you know, going exactly. He's not, you know, pinpoint accuracy yet. He's still having, you know, some issues where it's getting outside of the zone. He can have a higher number of walks. Uh, and he is definitely a fly ball guy. Uh, and that can, you know, as we've seen with Max Scherzer, even for elite fly ball pitchers, you're going to have some home run issues. Uh, so the key, I mean, the key for him is really going to be, can he kind of be closer? I mean, he's not going to be Max Scherzer, but can he be closer on the Scherzer side where you can limit the base runners otherwise? And so when you do give up that big fly ball for the home run, you're giving up a lot of solo shots. You're not doing too much damage, uh, you know, and then otherwise you're just getting strikeouts, you're getting out. So, you know, you're not letting them scratch. You're not letting teams scratch across runs. They're only, they're either going to get that solo home run or they're not getting anything off of you. Uh, or is he kind of lean back towards, you know, maybe closer to Joe Ross's, you know, debut season 2015 or 2016, I think it was 2016, you know, where he's getting the outs, wasn't really going super long into games, uh, but was every time he was getting, it's kind of like Paolo Espino uh, is doing, but you know, not with the, with actually good pitches and not 80 time out for our fastballs. So yeah, I'm going to get you at least five innings and I'll probably give up some runs, but it won't be so much that we're going to be completely out of this game. You know, if we score four, I'll probably give up three uh, or you know, we might score two. I'll give up four but we're still going to be in the game after I leave. 
I think that's kind of the, the floor we're seeing with him. Yeah. Now, Sean, does he have like a, a generic ceiling as far as like a slot in the rotation that's generally considered at this point? Or I mean, I'd say if it'd be relatively, I mean, there's no, no, there's no such thing as a pitching prospect. Nothing is ever safe, but three, a three starter is kind of the mid range projection. A two would be a, a good scenario. A four or five would be kind of a bummer. And then, you know, a bullpen guy would be, you know, kind of the lower case. Um, yeah. But, but three ish is what you're looking for. Yeah. I, I would say the way that the Nats, have built their rotations in the past. If they continue to kind of go with that strategy, he's definitely has to, at highest is going to be the three. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, so, you know, it's not the, this, the Nats definitely like to have at least two ace kind of Cy Young vote getting pitchers at the top. Um, I think Jojo could definitely be in that kind of third category, you know, supporting category, uh, where he'll have some really brilliant stretches and then some otherwise not so good stretches, you know, as, as you saw from Gio Gonzalez or Patrick Corbin before he completely just lost any semblance of knowing what to do with the slider. I actually wonder if it would behoove him to be in the zone a little bit less. Cause I mean, his walk numbers are great, but at the same time, you know, if he's given up a lot of home runs, you know, Getting them to uh, Ooh, you know, that's chase, on. yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> get, getting getting uh, thro- throwing more outside the zone, you know, not being afraid to put a guy on first sometimes, rather than throwing him something that he can hit out of the park. Yeah, I, and the key for that is just really maturity in, yeah. in knowing when you are throwing it into the zone, it actually will go in the zone. Hmm. So when you make that pitch out of the zone, you know, you're not putting yourself further behind. So the, the the problem is the same thing we saw with Gio Gonzalez. When Gio Gonzalez was on, he could pinpoint accurate, just dip his curveball right into the strike zone whenever he wanted to. He, his fastball would go wherever he wanted it to. And so that allowed him to say, all right, I want to get ahead of this pit, this batter. I'm going to throw a first pitch curveball, drop it in the zone. He's going to watch it come in. I'm now 0-1. Now I can start going wherever the heck I want, in the zone, out of the zone. I have him under my control. And then the real issue when Gio had poor starts or when he might start well and then kind of devolve as the game went on, his issue is that he didn't know when he was going to try. When I, I was like, I'm going to try to throw a strike here, whether it would actually be a strike or not. And that's the issue is you'd say, okay, you know, I got strike one. I'm going to throw one out of the zone. Now it's 1-1. One, one. All right, now I'm going to go back in the zone. Oh, that's out of the zone too. Now it's 2-1. And now I have to decide, you know, do I need to try to go into the zone again and give this guy a chance to rip a two, one fastball or whatever, or do I still try to kind of go with my plan before and get out of the zone? And if he takes it now, I'm stuck in three, one, and that's not the place you want to be. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think it's, it's really just kind of a maturity question. Um, but I agree. If he can find, find that spot where he can go in and out of the zone when he wants to freely uh, and not run into too many walk issues that that'll definitely help him out. And speaking of maturity in the zone, a good time to uh, segue into the uh, next piece in the deal. Hebert Ruiz, who um, has really, he's a really unique batting profile for a catcher. You know, he's got elite contact skills, really high hit grade, 
power is developing, uh, but he kind of does the, you know, the Vlad Guerrero type. He swings at everything, but without having quality contact on anything. So that's kind of his bugaboo right now is that he makes a lot of poor contact, hits into a lot of double plays. Uh, so the idea there is, you know, he can be, you know, a bat first league average type catcher, you know, unless he starts to mature and lay off pitches out of the zone. In that case, if he starts matching stuff to, you know, stuff in the zone, he could really be, you know, a stud. But yeah, regardless, the, having somebody that hits from the catcher position is going to be fun. Yeah. Well, the interesting thing I've seen from Ruiz so far is that he, nobody can really seem to tell what his power is like because uh, it's kind of gone in and out. Uh, and it's also not helped that he plays in the Pacific Coast League and mm. AAA. So it, which makes it pretty much impossible to determine what power anybody is hitting for. Yeah. Uh, and that's, because he's not walking. That's an easy thing you can kind of observe either. You're walking or you're not walking. Uh, whether you're actually be able to hit home runs or not is something I, we've seen with a lot of guys who come up with the Nats, like Trey Turner, uh, where you're not really seeing it in the stats as they come up. And you're like, well, this guy probably won't hit home runs. And then they show up and all of a sudden they're consistently hitting you know, 15 to 20. I, if that's something we could see from Ruiz, I, that would make him a really complete package, I think. Yeah. Yeah, the, and I guess the... The issue with him too is that, you know, generally speaking, he hasn't shown a whole lot of even like gap power in the minors, at least not consistently. I mean, he's hit, you know, double digit home runs now twice with his 16 this year, but you know, he hasn't, he's only gotten above 20 doubles twice too, which, you know, 20 doubles isn't that much, even though he hasn't played, you know, as a catcher, you know, he's not playing every single day. He's getting, you know, tops 400 plate appearances a year, but still, that's not a ton, you know, for a guy that puts the bat on the ball so much, puts so many balls in play and, and isn't hitting balls out of the park. Mm-hmm. So. No, we'll I would definitely say one of my key concerns for him at the plate is if it turns out that he does have tendencies in terms of where his balls in play go, that teams at a major league level with, you know, how much more advanced stack, you know, tracking we have, how many more advanced, you know, people in front offices that are analyzing that data can figure out what these tendencies are and can kind of come up with shifts or placements for him that can kind of take away those singles. Uh, I don't think he has the speed really to be, you know, saving his Babbitt by having a lot of infield grounders or a lot of, you know, shift busters and, and things like that. You know, he's going to have to be able to, when he makes contact, have that ball, you know, float and die and dive down for his singles. Uh, so the, the, it's definitely going to be a key if he can actually make sure he does have spraying all to all fields pretty consistently. Uh, and, and we don't see any sort of extreme levels of shift that can kind of cut down, you know, if you're mostly a batting average guy, if you're losing, you know, 20 hit 20%, you know, 10 hits or so, you're just going to start losing that batting average. You instead of 300, you're hitting 280. Uh, and if with that, so without power and without walking, that's not you know really major league level at that point. Yeah, I mean, in the the best case scenario for him, if you look at Sal Perez, his minor league numbers actually line up fairly well with uh, with Ruiz. I mean, they're not 
perfectly aligned. Uh, he struck out a little bit more and he was younger, but he never really showed a whole lot of pop in the minors. And it took him a couple of years for him to show up in the majors. He didn't hit 20 home runs until his fourth, fourth full season or, you know, third and a half season in the bigs. And, you know, mm-hmm. now he's hitting 25 plus a year. So, I mean, that's kind of your, you know, your probably 75th percentile ish is like kind of career average Sal Perez, not like, you know, his, you know, great seasons, but I mean, I think they would yeah. be pretty happy with that kind of outcome. Cause I mean, he's actually not Agreed. that bad defensively either. You know, a lot of offense first catchers are just awful behind the plate. And for him, it's mostly just, he's kind of known as being a little bit lazy with blocking balls, but you know, he receives pretty well and he's pretty good, you know, solid arm, you know, not nothing special, but not, you know, going to hurt you. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, and let's see the other guys. Um, Gerardo Carrillo. Uh, he's been starting the minors. Looks like he's probably pegged as a reliever in the future. Uh, he does have uh, four potentially plus pitches in his fastball is apparently got good sinking and tailing movement and he throws it 99, but he doesn't have good command of everything at all. So, you know, it's something where they'll probably try to keep him as a starter as long as possible. Cause it's hard to find guys that have four good pitches. Um, but obviously most of the time just moving to a new organization is not going to help somebody find their command. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the other thing is, I don't know. I, they probably should. I, everybody does keep us as start as long as you can. But what would be interesting to me is the Nats, considering the way they built their team and assuming they continue kind of prioritizing building this way, it, you know, they want a strong starting rotation. And that kind of eats up most of their pitching budget that they only really have money to have maybe one or two elite relievers on their back end. And then everybody else is kind of filler. A guy like this, you know, you say, oh, he'd become a reliever and you'd say, you know, classic reliever, just move him to a one inning role. He cuts down the number of pitches he throws. He just throws the fastball and, you know, the curve ball and you hope that the command issues, you know, aren't so bad that he can get through an inning. Uh, the interesting thing to me would be is if you could get him to command a little bit better, uh, you know, but not quite at a starting level, maybe, maybe he doesn't have the stamina to kind of consistently stay in the zone for five, six innings. If you could get him to be like your two inning, three inning reliever who's coming in when, you know, you're up one or two, but the starter's gone short or you're down one or two and you want to pull the starter before the third time through the order in the fifth inning. And that's where the Nats have had a lot of trouble is they do not have the relief pitchers to kind of cover that either. You have to use some of your traditionally good guys, you know, in the past, like Wander Suero, Tanner Rainey, Kyle Finnegan, they get way overused because they have to keep trying to cover those innings. And then also coming back and doing some late innings at other times, uh, or you just have to go to your B bullpen and hope that, you know, whoever the complete losers at the back are like Kyle McGowan or whatever can keep All this kind of close all your garbage Kyle's can keep it close for two innings, you know, before you finally can get back to your good relievers without overtaxing them. 
So if they could have a, a kind of transitional guy like that, I think it, to the Nats especially, it would be really valuable. That would be amazing given the Nats track record of uh, incompetency with developing any relief pitchers. Uh, I won't hold my breath, but that would be like, that would be probably the ultimate scenarios if they could get one or two guys here that they could have sort of be those weapons out of the bullpen that you see teams like the Rays have been, you know, using a lot for the short starters. Um, but I mean, you know, even if they do have to cut down his pitches, I mean, his fastball is, you know, supposedly lethal when he can figure out where it's going. So if he's got that and even one other pitch, he could still be a really good relief pitcher. Um, yeah. We'll see. Yeah. But he's, he's, uh, you know, pretty high up on the Nats rankings uh, already. Well, of course, obviously anybody would be because, you know, you, the three of us would be probably in the top 15 before the trades. It was definitely funny. There were, I think at least four kind of filler guys they ended up getting that were not on the top 30 of the team trading them and all ended up like 27 or lower for the Nats. Yeah. So yeah I, like, I looked okay. up all of them. There's only one guy that, uh, that wasn't ranked in the top 30 by either Fangraphs or MLB Pipeline or Baseball America. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's like one of the guys that got from the A's, right? Yeah. yeah. And then the last guy in the Dodgers deal was Donovan Casey, who uh, he was a two-way player at Boston College. He pitched, I think he pitched, I don't know if he pitched more, but he was focused more on pitching. So he's kind of a little bit of a late bloomer. He's 25, uh, but he's got, uh, 11 homers, 15 steals this year, striking out way too much. But I guess they're hoping that by concentrating full time on being, you know, a hitter, then he could be sort of a late bloomer, maybe slim to strikeouts. But more than likely, he'll, you know, top out as a fourth outfielder type, you know, maybe like a Jake Marisnik if he's, you know, lucky him or, I mean, even like a Mike Clay Taylor, you know, something like that mm-hmm. that can provide good defense you know, hit lefties pretty well is still going to strike out a good amount, but you know, still a competent major league player. Um, but apparently the Nats analytics department is who, uh, targeted him. I forget where I read that. I think it was one of the athletic writers. Maybe it was either Ken Rosenthaler, Shutter, Jim Bowden. Uh, or is it, <laughs> so, a, or is it yeah. like Durali or whatever? Yeah. Or like the actual beat writer for the Nats for the athletic is now. Oh, um, Oh, is it, where is it? Uh, Maria Torres, is she? Yeah, Maria Torres, yeah. Mm. yeah. That's right, because Brittany Giroli, or however you pronounce her last name, it's like national. Yeah, national. Now too. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess I assumed that uh, he probably had good, like, stat cast type numbers, and maybe they found something that they could try to tweak with him. But, you know, he's a 25-year-old yeah. in double A, so I'm not super excited, and he's kind of one well, of the guys is. that wasn't really that mm-hmm. highly rated. He was a multi-positional. He was pitcher slash batter as well, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if there's just something they see there. They just think that his development clock is slower and they can just pick him up. You know, he'd only be good for four years, but it would be through his prime, mm-hmm. 27 to 32 or something. Maybe that's what they're thinking, but it'll be interesting to see. Yeah. I mean, hate to see them pick up a guy that went to Boston College. Gross, but... Yeah, that's true. Nothing I'm biased. Now, uh, before we move on to the next one, uh, how do you guys feel about that return for Scherzer and Turner? 
I, I thought it was okay. Uh, I mean, at the time it looked a bit better. And then as some of the other trades kind of came through the next day, it did not look quite as good. Um, I, I think especially like the twins pulled back a lot in terms of, you know, what they got back for Jose Barrios. It was kind of a, a combination of Scherzer and Turner that he was a pitcher. It's supposed to be kind of an elite pitcher like Scherzer, although you know not quite as good as Scherzer, but also did have one more year uh, like Turner did. Uh, but he got two kind of frontline prospects at or potentially better than you know Kiebert and uh, Josiah Gray were. Uh, I think the issue then is if you kind of see that Trey Turner is probably should be valued kind of closely to Barrios, it should be similar. Um, then you would say that probably those top two prospects they got in the trade were, you know, just you know, Turner's value. Uh, then at that point, what they got from Max Scherzer is not really nearly enough. Um, I, I think it is kind of interesting what Sean said about Don McCasey, and maybe it is that they just kind of ignored the prospect ranking and went for this guy that, for some reason, some sort of data was telling me that he's way better than any of the rankings are saying. Uh, and if that turns out to be true, then I think this return looks really great. Uh, but just kind of going based off of what we know publicly and kind of the public prospect rankings, the, the fourth person there really should have been another more mid-level, you know, legitimate, like Carrillo, uh, you know, a prospect who has upside you can see uh, and, you know, also has weaknesses you can see. And you can kind of say, oh, either the upside will pay off or the weaknesses will pay off. Uh, if they got two guys like that for Scherzer, I think that would have been a more fair return than you know what we what it looks like Casey can bring to the table, which is not much. Yeah. Okay. And then for me, I mean, I feel like the Nats probably should have been able to at least could have been able to shake down the Dodgers for at least one more prospect or a better prospect uh, just by covering Scherzer and Turner's salaries this year. Uh, but I would say probably because. Uh, we can't also assume that the Dodgers are interested in doing that, even though they're paying what one and a half dollars for every dollar over the tax they go or yeah. whatever. They also have funny money. So they may just not care. Um, they may have just been like, yeah, we have the money. We don't, we're not going to give you an extra prospect. Uh, but I feel like they could have, they could have gone for, I assume that there was probably a similar package to what the uh, Jays gave up for a Barrios out there. Um, but mm-hmm. I I would assume that Rizzo also went for guys the package that was closer to the majors because uh, I mean Martin is supposed to be a fast track guy to the majors but he's still an A ball and uh, Simeon Woods Richardson I think he's in high A ball he's twenty or twenty one so it's you know those guys aren't that far off but there's a lot more variance when you're going for you know guys that are still in A high A ball even double A whereas you know he got back two guys that have played, you know, briefly, but played in the majors already. And then, uh, you know, another couple guys in both a double a, I mean, I'd say that's more of what they were trying to do, you know, a short rebuild rather than be the pirates mm-hmm. and just try to accumulate lottery right. tickets and lose for 20 years. Um, right. Whether it was yeah, or not. Like, question. like I said at the top, it was all about trying to get guys who could fit the same timeline that one soda would be on. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. All right, and then Rizzo was burning the midnight oil that evening uh, because next was Hudson. Hand was uh, well, I think Hand was the first official deal. Oh, that's right. To the Jays, yes. yeah, yeah. 
So they got back Riley Adams, who's a catcher uh, who he played a tiny bit in the majors this year. Um, he's a big guy. I think he's like 6'4". Uh, so he's kind of a little bit oversized for the position. Um, but he apparently... Like Matt Wieters. Yeah, exactly. He can apparently handle himself okay. and uh, Doesn't have a good hit tool, but apparently has like monster raw power. So more or less, it's like a Zunino type player without like the elite defensive skills. So I'm yeah. kind of lukewarm on him. You know, maybe they see something in well, him that they really like, but Adams was one I was going to be curious about if you think whether he'd be somebody they might be looking at in terms of moving him off of catcher, especially since they ended up having three different catchers yeah, uh, as well as Trace Barrera so far looking actually decent or, you know, good enough to be able to be a backup. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and you can, it, it's still not too hard to find a backup catcher. If Kieber is going to be your, your starter, yeah. whether yeah, it might be a situation where they're going to, they want to try to move uh, Adams off of catcher to corner outfield and see if that helps him unlock his, his power more. Yeah. I mean, it'd be worth a shot. I mean, you know, or even if they can get him to play first, um, but I mean, he's got a lot of strikeout in his game and a lot of, you know, not a lot of contact. So I'm a little bit skeptical, but also it's kind of hard to look at it objectively. You know, you can't just look at the stats and be like, yeah, this is the hitter. He will always be, you know, when he, even if he were to move, you know, if he were to DH first base catcher, because there's a much better than zero chance that they're going to put the DH in the NL next year, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean that could be he could be a guy that they're even looking at for that. You know, maybe you carry three catchers and two of them are you know between Kiebert and Adams are both pretty offense forward, and then maybe you just have a third around that is a little bit more defensive. You know, maybe it's Trace, and you know then you can kind of rotate guys in and out to keep them fresh. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that would be good, but maybe that's what they're thinking. It'd be interesting. <laughs> All right, next up, Kyle Schwarber to the Red Sox. So the guy they got back for the Red Sox, Aldo Ramirez, I think he's my favorite, not not in terms of like the best, but he's the most interesting prospect they got back for me, um, assuming. So he's on the aisle right now with elbow tendonitis, uh, but he's one of the further ones away. He's only an A ball and he's only 20. Um but he's put up really good peripheral numbers uh, back before COVID in 2019 uh, in low A as an 18-year-old. Um, and then he's got a really good track record of actually competing against guys that are older than him. So uh, there was an article on Mass Live about him during COVID. Apparently, he uh, impressed the Red Sox by his initiative and in, like staying in shape. He was uh, pitching against a bunch of former MLB players. They named Alexi Ramirez specifically. Um, and they were saying like, even when he would get, you know, hit hard, he would, you know, remain aggressive. He was unfazed. Um, and you know, they're impressed with his mentality, his, uh, work, work ethic and his intelligence on the mound. So, uh, he's kind of got a smaller frame, so it may limit his physical projection, but, uh, you know, he's apparently got really good, a really good change up and good command. And, uh, I think Eric, Eric Longenhagen on uh, Fangraphs was saying that guys like that tend to overperform their projections. So you get kind of have all the things put together, you know, 
a guy with good command, you know, that works really hard, that, you know, is aggressive and stuff. It's a guy that you want to root for, at least. So, I mean, it's someone yeah. that you know, he's still only, you know, probably what 10th to 12th prospect in the Nats organization. So it's not like he's yeah. a Cavalli ace kind of guy, but, you know, it's somebody that, you know, could move, you know, become one of your next kind of exciting out of, not out of nowhere, but that kind of guy. Yeah, and it, it did sound like the you know, BA and I think some of the, one of the Fangraphs guys both sounded like to me that they were ready to move him up even further when he was with the Red Sox on their midseason updates. Uh, and then once he had the elbow injury, they kind of backed off of that a bit and, and took him back down closer to the, the 10 to 12 range. Yeah. Um, this is an interesting one to me as well because he, I think, was 10 to 12 range on the Red Sox. And it was one of the few prospects that stayed at the same kind of ranking spot when it moved, when they moved to the Nats organization. Um, so I think it, it definitely speaks to you the potential that he has. Um, it, like you said, this is one of the few guys they have that uh, a longer term project. Yeah. Yeah. So should be interesting to see. And it's, it's, it was an interesting return given that Schwarber has been hurt for a while, struggled before his rampage. You know, he had those, what, two weeks where he had all the home runs. But mm-hmm. other than that, he wasn't that hot earlier in the season and that they're going to have him play first base. He's not going to DH and he's not going to play the outfield. Okay. Because they, they already have DHs and corner outfielders. So, yeah. They, they, what they needed was a first baseman. Uh, it was very interesting. Uh, they could have had Josh Bell from the Red Sox perspective. I uh, I do really enjoy though this time of year when you see like national writers talking about different guys and like Schwarber came up and they're like, man, he had a hell of a first half, and it's like you just looked at his stat line is all you did. Yeah, <laughs> he had <laughs> two amazing garbage for a month and a half. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. Next up, uh, world champion Daniel Hudson uh, to the San Diego Padres. Yep. Yes. For Mason Thompson, I'm going to give you his review right now. Really great at getting two quick outs and then gets himself into trouble very quickly. Yeah, it looks like he's falling apart. Ooh, but good first pitch strikes to Reese Hoskins in particular. Sure. Don't throw him to Adubel Herrera, though. Okay, cool. <laughs> Is Mason Thompson very 80 grade first pitch strikes to Reese Hoskins? So, as long as Reese Hoskins stays in the division, that will be a really helpful tool going <laughs> forward. Uh, all right, Sean, back to you for any real comments. So, uh, awesome. remember when we sent down Tanner Rainey the other day? So, yes. uh, Mason Was Thompson. response? So yeah, Mason Thompson is uh, going to be just as fun to watch a lot of the time as. Uh, as Tanner Rainey, uh, he is a humongous dude that struggles he's with taller, everything. So I already like yeah. him more. Yeah, he's not Tanner. I guess he's paler. He's um, taller, not yeah. Tanner. So yeah, he struggles with both his command and control. So that's always fun. Um, although his walk rates are getting up a little <laughs> bit better. <laughs> he's great at striking out Reese Hoskinses. Uh, he does have a really good sinking fastball. Um, and I guess the idea is that either he needs to perfect his sinker command. I think one of the fan graphs guys said he threw his sinker 42 out of 44 pitches when he's been up for the 
Padres this year. Uh, so either he needs to perfect his command there and he can be a one pitch pitcher. Like, a is it, is it Trinan that basically just throws a sinker or he needs to develop a consistent secondary offering, you know, so they can't just sit on it. Not that you can really sit on a 99 sinker, but you can to some degree. Um, but he gave up a lot of home runs this year for a single brawling, huge 99 throwing. I mean, I, it's, it's like Blake Trinan. Yeah. It's a really big trend. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that would be one of the, the biggest hopes you have. I, what he just did right then is that you're, you're actually rebuilding. There's no expectation to make the playoffs. So Davey, just sit your ass in the fucking dugout and let him load the bases. Have Reese Hoskins come up, stay in the dugout, let him face Reese Hoskins and bam, strike out. You know, well, then, let yeah. him work through this stuff. You don't pull him at every first sign of trouble. And hopefully it's a situation where they can actually let these types of relievers develop rather than having to continue putting pressure and, and saying, Hey, I, this is something that David in particular done has done, but the Nats have kind of done in general with their young pitchers since they've been in contention for so long as, you know, first time of trouble, you're coming out because we can't afford to just lose games while you dick around on the mound. So you know, all these young guys, it's really hard for them is they have the pressure. They have to come in and start performing or they're going to come right back out. So uh, that was actually kind of cool to see them finally let uh, a young relief pitcher go for a little bit longer and he get a, he got out of his own jam. And I mean, generally speaking, he's the type of guy with a profile that should be able to get out of jams theoretically a little better than others because he's, he's a ground ball pitcher, you know, the throw sinker. So he throws, he could theoretically throw a lot of double plays and he also has, you know, crazy stuff that he can strike as out too. So the combination of strikeout stuff plus ground ball stuff, it's not the end of the world if you put guys on, but also he needs to not walk six guys per nine innings or whatever. That's not nice. Yes. That would be pretty bad. You find yourself back in triple A or double A or wherever. Yeah. The street. If you keep walking six guys per nine innings. Yeah. And they got another guy back who was a, he was a million dollar uh, international free agent, I think back in like 2016, uh, but he's only 21 now. Uh, I guess that makes sense with math because he was 16 then and now he's 21. Uh, his name is Jordy Barley. He's a shortstop, but he's basically got, you know, really good raw power and speed, you know, your typical toolsy guy that's unrefined. He's got 33 steals in 61 games this year. Um, his, you know, he's striking out way too much, which has been his issue. Uh, he, it has gotten better generally every year and it's as best as it's ever been. It's still bad, but he's up to almost, uh, it's 0.38 walks per strikeout. So, you know, two out of every five basically. So it's not, Horrible, horrible, horrible. You know, it had been 0.17 to 0.25, which is bad, but not great. Uh, but, I mean, at least he's a lotto ticket type in a system that doesn't have many of them. You know, most likely he's not going to become a guy, but, you know, might as well see. You know, it's rather – it's better than, you know, putting some high uh, college senior that, you know, you know is just going to be a org guy – in single A, you know, at least this way you can see maybe you get lucky. No, and then, I mean, it's never worked out for the Nats before when they've made a trade with the Padres where they get back a 
pretty ready, major league ready pitcher and a very fast shortstop. That shortstop has never amounted to anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, not to, not to actually compare Jody Barley and Trey Turner. Trey Turner was a legitimate prospect when he was no, here. Exactly Jody Barley is, is very different. But it was pretty fun to see. You know, it is funny kind of the way the narrative lines up, especially with Trey Turner being traded away. Uh, and it was also kind of funny in Fredericksburg debut. I think he like walked, stole a base, scored a run, then singles, scored, and scored another run. And then his third time up, launched a bomb to left field for a home run. So, you know, maybe he, he, uh, he just needs that old Padres to Nationals trade route to really unlock his potential. <laughs> yeah. Andrew Stevenson just hit a home run. Andrew Is that what you're making that face at? Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Andy Steves, man. We we haven't gotten to that yes. part yet. I, I guess we can we can briefly skip over the uh, the A's trade then to uh, talk about the right-handed Andy Stevenson that we traded for. <laughs> <Beautiful>. <laughs> uh, so can John Lester for Lane Thomas. <laughs> so basically, with Lane Thomas and Andrew Stevenson, we can just build a, a super Andrew Stevenson. Uh, that has a even platoon split. Of course, Lane Thomas actually has a competent arm. Uh, and well, I would say power. Usually Stevenson only has power against DeGrom. So I guess uh, DeGrom and uh, Enyel De Los Santos are both elite pitchers. So it makes sense. <laughs> um, so that was that, a terrible pitch. Yeah. Um, no, I, I, the fact they got literally anything for John Lester is hilarious. I don't know what the Cardinals are doing. If they're meant, I kind of just felt like when Mr. Burns was first trying to assemble his team of ringers with Smithers, and like the whole team was like, you know, guys from 1900, and one of them was second baseman had been dead for 50 years. <laughs> and it's just like, but in this case, whoever was in charge of the Cardinals you know, mid-season trading plan, put that team together, and there was no Smithers there to tell him not to do that. So he's like, oh, I've got the ace John Lester and a great number two and J.A. Happ. You know, we're really building this rotation. We're going to be going places. I saw yesterday somebody said J.J. Happ is the only pitcher on their in their staff right now that has an average fastball over 90 miles an hour, and it's yeah. 90.2. Which is the saddest thing. Of course, they have, uh, I think, four starters on, on the IL, but I think at least two or maybe three out of the four were fairly injury prone. So it's not like they shouldn't have had a plan B in place or a plan C. But yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's ridiculous. I, I just, I don't know why this was a plan. I don't know why they were even buying. But like the funniest thing is, is that it be, there's no point in them. Um, trading for anyone anyways because unlike the nationals phillies braves and mets their division leader is way ahead of them in the brewers and actually legitimately talented and will probably 80 percent or higher chance will stay way ahead of them and there's no wild card spots this year because the padres the giants and the dodgers have that all locked down yeah uh-huh. so it made no sense to me, one, that they'd be trading for, you know, they'd be buying at all. And then two, buying two starting pitchers who are completely useless to try to shore up their rotation until people get healthy. And then three, giving up anything actually of maybe even interesting value in return for that is just wild. 
So their playoff make the playoffs per percentage on uh, Fangraphs is roughly two percent higher than ours. So yeah, and the uh, I think the Nats the Reds are ahead of them one, too. The Nats were I think by zips the Nats were right at two percent before they made their final trades going into the deadline and then moved down to zero percent. You know, I don't know what depth charts might it might be a little bit higher, but yeah, the Cardinals had no chance. It's just. I don't know who thought that was a good idea, who approved that idea, who else then approved that person's approval. But, I mean, thanks. Uh, I, it's, the only downside is Elaine Thomas, like you said, is more of a, it's kind of just a right-handed Andrew Stevenson. I think a couple of his tools are a little bit stronger than Stevenson's. Yes. Uh, so he could develop more, but also he's been pretty terrible so far, hitting-wise in the majors. Yep. Um, but... Uh, it would be so great if this you could actually develop into a serious fourth outfielder, you know, kind of back up somebody you could actually trust to go to fill in, you know, similar to how Michael A. Taylor played in, in 2017. Um, and getting that for John Lester would just be so hilarious. So I imagine I am, if they had that this year, if they didn't have to move Josh Harrison to left field, if they could have kept him, you know, starting mm-hmm. the infield every day, imagine how much better that the first half of the season would have gone. I mean, it still probably wouldn't have gone that well. I don't but. know. I don't know if it would have been that much better because then you would, where would you put Alcides Escobar? <laughs> who is in the hell. star? <laughs> but he's doing weirdly well. He's like just barely now finally below 100 in WRC plus, but mm. he was actually decent. It's the funniest thing is I don't know. He actually sort of worked. It makes no sense whatsoever. I mean, when you put the ball in play, sometimes you get random crazy hot streaks, I guess. You know, you hit them where they ain't. But actually, Thomas, I actually like, I mean, obviously he's sucked the last last year and this year in his small sample size uh, MLB time. But he also did fill in, uh, he's got like, 25 plus starts at both second and third in the minors. I think he's got 50 at second. So like, you know, theoretically he could play other positions too, if needed, you know, I don't think that's a plan a by any means, but you know, having somebody kind of on the bench that could fill in in a utility type role, even if it's a sort of more of an emergency type, but like last year, his fan graphs grades, he had 50 to 60 future grades and everything, but, uh, but power, I think. Yeah, hit, raw power, speed, fielding, and arm, all 50 or 60. I mean, nothing higher, but, you know, competency sometimes is hard to find, especially oh, when you're fun. trading John Lester at the deadline, you know, the corpse of John Lester that hasn't been useful in the last, you know, month and a half. He had those like, yes. four starts in a row that were real good, and then other than that. Yeah, it's like Kyle Schwarber, except for Lester actually played in July to get exposed rather than Schwarber, who comfortably sat injured so people could just project whatever they wanted onto him. Yeah. Uh, or, yeah, it was just, you know, bad, a couple weeks stretch of good, and then right back to terrible again. So, I will say the Cardinals churn out outfielders like crazy, though. They've had so like so many random outfielders like Adolis Garcia, who like lit fire, caught fire for the Rangers this year. It was just like a Cardinals cast off. Like they're just a, a jillion Cardinals outfielders yeah. that have Tommy gone Pham was uh, originally with the Cardinals too, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. 
So, I mean, you know, maybe well, hopefully it follows in everybody else's footsteps and, you know, becomes good once he leaves them, you know, once they gave up on him. We'll see. We'll see. Uh, and then the last trade here uh, is Jan Gomes, Josh Harrison, and Cash to the Oakland Athletics. Well, you knew Mike Rizzo could not avoid having a trade with the A's. I mean, he's trading with everybody. He's got to have a you know a nice trade with his buddy, the A's. Yeah, <laughs> buddy Billy Bean. Yeah, so the the main guy they got back there, Drew Millis, is a switch hitting catcher. Um, Woo! Catchers. Fangraphs really likes him. Uh, Eric Longenhagen thinks he's a very very good defensive catcher. He's got. Uh, good contact skills like uh, Kiebert, not that good, but good. Uh, and then very good plate discipline. He's walking more than he's striking out, but he doesn't have power at all. So um, theoretically, profile as a low-range starter and or an above-average backup. Uh, but you know, if the stars align with his bat, he could be an average or better starter. You know, maybe a Omar Navarre Navarez type guy. Um, yeah. But with theoretically with better defense too. Apparently he's extremely athletic, which is you know he came from the athletics, so you you know that he was going to be athletic. Uh, but I mean he's he's someone that's at least fun to watch as a you know as a prospect down the line. Catchers are notoriously not the greatest uh, prospects to bet on, and that's probably why the Nats traded for a bunch of them at the deadline because uh, they have not had luck yeah. developing any. Well, I'd also say, especially in Melas's case, he's so far he's in low A or high A. I think he's in regular A. Okay, at least last I think yeah. I saw. So, so that I mean, regular A, low A, whatever. Yeah. Um, a, he's only like twenty years old. Um, so. 23. Oh, he's 23? Oh, wow. Yeah. He was a so college was draft pick. Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. I thought he was like younger, um, younger college guy. But um, no, I, I would say since he's still kind of a decent ways off, I could also see his rankings being lower just because he's a catcher. Um, then you would see if you saw, if you gave kind of similar ratings to his tools and said he was, you know, as defensively gifted at catcher, if you translated that to uh, you know a third baseman or a second baseman or something, you're not not one of the elite defensive positions like short or center field where you'd say, oh, well, that guy could just move around the diamond. You know, somewhere where he's probably set at second or third, but still valuable defensively, and he's you know this gifted at defensively and also has some decent hittable you know hit projections. I think that's somebody who would have probably ended up. You know, top fifteen, closer to the eight to eleven range than where he is now, down in the in you know the high twenties or well, low twenties, depending on how you want to define it. Fangraphs has him at thirteen. They they really like okay. him, but, but yeah, like oh. MLB Pipeline yeah, has think- twenty four. So it's it, there's a big schism between you know what uh, they like and I guess what the MLB Pipeline likes, which is yeah. Generally, I would lean towards your Fangraphs and your Baseball Americas. MLB Pipeline tends to not be uh, not be super critical on guys. Uh, you know, not they don't want to exploit anybody's flaws. Uh, so everybody's a perfect prospect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, hey, it's useful. It looks like he well, he played 
one inning in the outfield in like a summer league. So, I mean, theoretically he's uh, athletic, you know, maybe he can play a little bit there too. Who knows? Um, and then the other two guys they got back, uh, they're both, I think they're both in high A, uh, both are current starters. Uh, one's definitely a future reliever, uh, Richard Gouache. I think it's Gouache. And I believe he's, uh, Cuban, uh, so I don't know if Guash is pronounced differently in Cuba. He's put up really good strikeout numbers, struggled with walks, but he's hit 96 with his fastball. You know, maybe he can be a guy if he can hone his slider a little bit. And the other guy, Seth Schumann, uh, looks like he's a pitchability fifth starter, swingman type. Uh, he's put up actually really good peripherals in the minors, um, and he's apparently got pretty good command of four pitches and. You know, throws them pretty well, but generally speaking, you know, those types of guys succeed in the minors, and then as they get closer to the majors, get worse and worse. So we'll see. Yeah, and that's we've had plenty of guys like that before that we've, exactly, we've yeah. watched. Usually, exactly those are that. the ones that we trade. Yes. Yeah. So, with all the returns back, it obviously doesn't like fully restock the farm system, but what would you say that this does for the Nats farm system at this point? Um, so, I mean, we obviously targeted two types of prospects, you know, guys that are close to the majors and catchers, uh, which I think I said before, I, you know, prefer that to sort of the low level lottery ticket, like pirates approach where you just try to get a bunch of guys with high upside and then they all turn out to suck. Um, I do wish that they had done a little bit of a better job of uh, weaponizing their 40-man roster uh, openings. There's a lot of teams like the Rays and the Yankees that are going to have a lot of tough decisions this year in the Rule 5 draft, and I kind of wish that they had gone, you know, try to at least make a trade or two with those types of teams, uh, you know, for guys that theoretically could have gotten a little bit more value because they had a lot of open spots, both with the players they dealt and also they have a lot of dead weight on the 40 man your guys like yeah. your Jeffrey Rodriguez's and your Machado's and stuff. Uh they did an okay job with it, but they also got, you know, like Riley Adams and Mason Thompson, I think are two guys that like, you know, could theoretically be DFA material in six months if they don't turn out. So it's, you know, it's okay, but you know, they, they kind of I think they went for maybe a couple too many guys that were already on the 40 man that didn't have super upside that was worth while maybe for them to try it out, but you know, we'll see. Um, but I mean, honestly, the difference between like having the 10th best system and the 25th best system, isn't really as big of a deal as you think, you know, it's, you have more depth, but a lot of the rankings like to overrate the teams that have a lot of, you know, the fifth starters, backup catchers, utility infielders, fourth outfielders, like the replacement level type guys, um, and they underrate, uh, especially young international talent, most of the time for good reason, because it's, they haven't gotten a chance to go out and scout them yet. And they have inconsistent level of competition and stuff. But, you know, I would guess that, you know, the Nats have done well in the past in the international market and they've got some good international, uh, prospects, uh, like Jeremy yeah. DeLaRosa and Mondo Cruz. Ridiculous Dad. month. Yeah, after like the worst month in history, now he's at the best yeah. month in history. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, looked good. Yeah, so I mean, as long as they 
I mean, it's it's not. I I don't really know if it's a skill. I mean, I assume that you know, there's obviously better scouting departments than others and stuff. So obviously it's some level of a skill, but like, you know, they've, I feel like they've done better than most teams at developing, especially international hitters. Uh, so I think that as long as they can continue to do that, their, their uh, system is in better shape than we think. And really, you know, they've got high end ish guys in all the roles that are hard to find, which are, you know, starting pitcher, you've got Cavalian gray, and then you got mid-range guys, your Rutledges, uh, Ramirez, the new guy, and Cole Henry, Kiebert at catcher. And then you've got Luis Garcia is, you know, obviously young. And Brady House is a good middle infield prospect. You know, middle infielders are always hard to find. Obviously, Soto's still 21, right? Uh, and then you've got, you know, some more high-end outfielders and even Robles if you can fix them. So kind of your up-the-middle type guys and starters, that's really what is most important to build around. You know, if you have – your, you know, fifth best prospect is a, you know, power hitting first baseman in the minors. Most likely that guy's going to suck in the big leagues. You know, it's very rare that first, you know, guys like that turn out to be good. So I wouldn't put too much stock in the rankings unless you're, you know, the best minor league system, the second best, you know, but I mean, generally speaking, once you're past the first five, there's not a lot of difference between that and, you know, 25. Just variance. And I would say at the major league level, what, what you're going to be able to see is, you know, one, you get the big benefit of, you know, guys like Carter Keeboom, Luis Garcia, you know, Victor Robles, they're, they get to have their spots. They're not, you know, in Keeboom and Garcia's case, they're not being called up to fill in for somebody else. There's no pressure on them. Like, oh, you know, Juan Soto's out for three weeks. Carter, come up and hopefully you can kind of fill that spot, you know, it's really like, hey, Carter, this is your starting third baseman spot. You know, Luis Garcia, you're going to start every night, either shortstop or second base. Uh, Victor, you, you, Victor Robles, you get to be the leadoff hitter pretty much every night. You're the starting center fielder every night. You know, you don't have to worry about us randomly putting Andrew Stevenson in for no good reason uh, because we think it's some sort of platoon advantage. You know, and you can kind of focus and hopefully without the pressure of filling in for somebody of trying to make sure that wins, knowing that there's like a comical kind of cane ready to pull them right back off the field. If they make too many mistakes, because that's getting in the way of going one and no today and more, you know, this long-term view of get yourself comfortable, figure out that what you do does work in the majors and that you can perform at this level. Uh, and then hopefully in the future, when you do have those situations, where you might have a struggle, you might make a mistake or two. One, your manager and your team will know they can trust you more and that they can give you that mistake or two and you can stay in that situation and that you'll fix it. Uh, and two, for yourself, that you know that you're not going to get defined by those mistakes, that you mess up one or two times, you're not going to get into a rut. You're going to say, hey, I, I perform at this level. I'm going to do it. I can keep performing. And you can kind of get yourself back out of cold streaks much faster. Uh, I, I think that's the big thing you're hoping to see. Uh, you're hoping to see Jojo Gray come up and kind of continue from what he's done tonight and have you know some more good starts and really already start looking like an established kind of four or five level pitcher with that potential to move up, you know, you know, based on how he can command his pitches up to that three level. Uh, I think you're hoping to see Ruiz at some point this year. Uh, we'll see. Um, 
I think right now they're kind of they wanted to move to AAA to kind of get a better assessment of him with their own scout size, and also since Trace Pereira is on the heater of his life, you don't really want to interrupt that to make Kiebert start and have Trace you know go sit back down. You want to kind of see where this is going to go. Um, and then I think what you're going to see next year is one they should definitely they'll definitely. I'd be shocked if they were not a player in the shortstop free agent market next year. And they didn't pull down one of those. I mean, like Sean said, there's like eight different guys on the market. I think Chris Taylor would probably be the only one of those. They shouldn't be interested in at all. You know, Semyon would be borderline, but everybody else that he listed, you know, one of those guys should be a Washington national next year. Um, and I think what you're really hoping to see is, you know, if Keeboom can step up, I mean, this is getting kind of optimistic, but, you know, Kibum can step up, Garcia can step up, Robles can step up and be, you know, at least kind of league average hitters, you know, major league guys are comfortable starting. Uh, you have Juan Soto, you'll have Josh Bell. Um, and then, you know, if you have Keeper Ruiz, he's, he's starting and he's good. You pretty much at that point, you're only looking at left field as the only position player spot that you need some somebody to fill. I mean, your whole team will be built up on the position player level if these guys hit their projections. You know, obviously, it's very optimistic. One or two of those people won't quite be ready to go. Um, but if they are, I mean, that's great because what you're then going to have to do is either hope you get lucky and Steven Strasburg really can't come back from thoracic outlet surgery and be ready immediately. It seems very unlikely based on the history we've seen of other pitchers at this point. You know, sadly, it's questionable whether he can come back at all, let alone if he can come back that fast. You know, Patrick Corbin's still not looking that good. Eric Fetty, after a good month, has not has kind of gone the wrong way. You know, Joe Ross is still kind of going in and out. Occasionally he's good. Occasionally he's not performing as well really looking like kind of your fifth starter. Uh, I, I think starting next year, you're going to have to try to completely rebuild the starting rotation. I think you can start with JoJo Gray. You can start with Joe Ross's your four or five spots, but that means you're going to try to have to find an ace, a two and a three, you know, within next off season or the off season afterwards. Um, hopefully Kate Cavalli can come up and, and take one of those spots as well. Uh, so I think that's going to be the real challenge. It won't necessarily, for the first time, it won't necessarily be on the position player side. It will be on the pitching side. Uh, that They're going to have to rebuild that rotation, find those aces again. They're going to have to find back end of the bullpen arms uh, and middle of the bullpen arms and any kind of bullpen arm whatsoever. Um, so I think it's an interesting time. Uh, we'll really see how it plays out in these next two months. And the dream is that Keeboom, Garcia, Robles all step up, and then you can say, oh, you know what? We can get started in 2022. Let's just go, you know, we can show Scher- Max. Let's go get Max Scherzer and have him come back for three years or something. You know, that's our ace. We got JoJo. We got Ross. You can throw Fetty out there. We'll make the, you know, make it work with Corbin or Strasburg, or we'll bring in another kind of veteran guy and kind of have them all rotate together. Uh, you know, you could rebuild really fast and be ready 2022, or maybe those guys still aren't showing they're quite ready to go yet. You're not ready to rely on them. You say, and then at that point, 2022, 10 year anniversary of 2012, they're going to be in kind of the same 
exact spot they were then where you had a lot of young guys that you thought maybe they'd work, but you weren't a hundred percent sure. And then in 2012, all of a sudden it just all came together and they won 98 games. Uh, I, I think it'll be a similar kind of say where you say, okay, we see these good pieces, but we're still not sure how they fit together. We'll add a couple, you know, veterans to kind of help them out, but there'd be no expectations kind of go into it. And it might be another developmental year. And we're really looking at 2023 is when the Nats are, are ready to come back or uh, maybe you can be surprised. Uh, and then on the not optimistic view, none of these guys really work out. And it, at that point, you know that the key is in these three years, you need to learn whether we need to re-sign Soto to a gigantic contract because we have the players surrounding him ready to go or this round of prospects didn't work. We need to completely scrub all over and rebuild very slowly from the ground up. Yeah. Yeah. I don't disagree. Um, this next couple of months will be pretty, uh, pretty telltale on how that's going to go. Um, so there were some moves made around the division as well. Um, the Mets went and brought in uh, Javi Baez to play shortstop for now until Lindor gets back and then take over second base. Um, I mean, I'll fi- I'm all fine with that one. The one that I found that was funny was uh, the Braves went out and traded for Adam Duvall, Eddie Rosor- Rosario, and <clears throat> Jorge Soler. Mm-hmm. And everything that I was seeing was like, the Braves went and like completely remade their outfield. Look at this. They made some great strides. And I'm going back and looking at this, and I'm like, none of these guys can hit. Well, and if you put Jorge Soler in the outfield, then that's the worst plan of all time. <laughs> I'm just right. like Jorge Soler hit one time. All of them hit for at least one season one time. Mm-hmm. I mean, so, they didn't really I mean, give up anything just, for them. But, yeah. No, it's very interesting to me. The Phillies also... The Phillies traded their best prospect for, like, uh, two... Ian Kennedy uh, and Kyle Gibson. Kyle Gibson, yeah. Again, it it was very weird uh, compared to what we were kind of talking about in the beginning of July with the Nats when it was looking like maybe they'd be able to put some runs together and stay up there and stay close to the Mets. But this is a very weak division. The Mets are not really that are an okay team. They have some talented players, but a lot of them aren't performing. A lot of them are getting injured frequently. Jacob DeGrom is, you know, not doing well. And I think everybody could have freaking guessed before they announced it right after the deadline that DeGrom was more injured than they were letting on. Syndergaard still is waiting to even start throwing and ramping up, you know, let alone going to bullpens and rehab starts and actually being able to pitch. And this is an extremely winnable division. And it's fascinating to me that the two teams, you know, the Nets probably made the right call to kind of pull out of it, but it's wild to me that the Phillies and the Braves both kind of punted and just said, well, maybe we'll get lucky and win. But yeah, the, the Phillies one was, the Braves was pretty funny is that everybody was kind of excited about their moves and they were fairly nothing moves. But the Phillies one was very funny to me that 
they had they, their top prospect that I think it was a pitching prospect, right? And he had like yeah, yeah, ten, yeah, like yeah, Spencer Howard. I think he had like six starts this year, and they weren't that good. And they're just like, "Fuck, you suck! Get the hell out of here!" Yeah, and Give I mean they traded. <laughs> they got they got like a former top prospect back from the Rangers, who I think he's still only twenty two. So I mean they can try to fix him, but it's but he's not a you know he's not as shiny as he used to be. And I mean, Spencer Howard also isn't maybe as shiny as he was at the beginning of the year. He's almost 20 or he is 25 now and he can't mm-hmm. pitch more than four innings in a start. But I mean, you know, this, this has been your top pitching prospect for, you know, four years now. And then you just give them up for Ian Kennedy and Kyle Gibson in a division that, you may end up finding a way to win. Who knows? But even if you do win it, your team still sucks and is going to get annihilated in the playoffs. Like it's not in, in the, even the Mets, the Mets traded their first round pick from last year for Javi Baez, who, I mean, he's fine and can fill in for Lindor, but it's just a lot of teams in the division bought well, and, for whatever reason. And Trevor Williams's Twitter account. And also, yes. I guess Trevor Williams himself, but he's not really useful. The, the Twitter account's what's valuable there. Yeah. Well, and it was a double whammy for the Mets on that end because you trade away your first round pick from last year and then proceed to not even offer a contract to your first round pick this year. Well, they did offer a contract. Yeah, yeah they, they had they to, had to offer the contract to find out that they didn't like his medicals. Well, they uh, also had to offer their offer. You have sure. to offer forty percent of the slot value in order to get the uh, the compensation pick. So they had to offer him, you know, whatever forty percent of I think it was like four and a half million ish was his slot value. Uh, but I mean, basically, they punted their whole draft to go over slot to sign him. So I'm still kind of surprised that they didn't. Just sign, just sign him. him anyways. Yeah, because I mean, this obviously wasn't their plan. You know, it's not like they tried to tank. You know, they didn't try to play hardball. They must have seen something they didn't like. And even even Keith Law was like, well, the last time I got upset about a team doing this uh, was with the Astros and Jacob Nix, and it turned out they were right. Like, it wasn't that he needed Tommy John surgery. It was like that his elbow had some sort of weird issue that, like, he wouldn't recover well from Tommy John surgery if he had it, which is apparently why they walked away from him. So he's like... Maybe there is something well, like that, that, was, that in the medicals, but Brady Aiken was the one that they oh, yeah, walked away from, and then Nix was the one who got screwed by that yeah, because that's right because they didn't sign Aiken, they didn't have his bonus month pool money available anymore, so then they couldn't sign Nix either. Yeah, I mean, this you know to be honest though, these first round picks are still yeah they they get they sign for a lot of money but they're still signed for so much less than what their value really is <laughs> so i mean i'd still say it's worth uh worth taking a shot cuz i mean next year yeah they get a compensation pick for it but you uh you don't have as much leverage with that pick cuz uh if that pick doesn't sign then you don't get a third you don't get a second one so it was yeah, like when and, the, and next, the the Drew Storm pick yeah, I was gonna say. Oftentimes, you end up with Drew Storm, and that's even worse. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I mean, I guess you know, they if they really didn't like what they saw, that's fine. But it just seems like something they should have found a way to get done. Um, yeah, yeah. Particularly if 
from what you're saying of like they kind of base their draft around well we're going to spend all of our money here so we don't really care what else is coming out you would have thought they would have gotten it done regardless and just yeah i mean they must have really not liked what they saw because their draft was literally but like it was awful because <laughs> they went all in on signing him you know it was all you know senior sign or you know college safe type guys you know low ceiling guys so mm-hmm. yeah and what was really stupid is they didn't most of the time if you go all in on a guy like that you still draft a guy that may be hard to sign in like the 11th round, like outside of the top 10 rounds. Right. So that if this guy doesn't sign, then you can throw 2 million at some high schooler and say, Hey, you don't want to go to, you know, I don't know, South Carolina, Arkansas, South Carolina, whatever you come play for us. Like here's triple what you're asking for because we have it and we don't want it to go to waste. Uh, but they right. didn't do that. <laughs> right. Well, the, the fascinating thing to me with rocker is that it's just a signing bonus. So it's like, why would you not just pay $5 million to see if the upside would work? Right. It's not like you're committing yeah, to pay him $5 million a year for the next six years until you figure out whether he's good or not. It's we give you $5 million and then we pay you absolutely nothing. Uh, and then if you happen to make it to the majors, you for the first three years, you'll get a total of a million and a half dollars. You know, depending on how the CBA changes next year, uh, it was just very odd to me that they would have gone that route. Um, so I, you would think there must have been something completely ridiculous on his in his medicals that would force them to do that. But then also, it's the Mets, so maybe not. He actually um, didn't have an arm to begin with. Yeah. Well, the, the other interesting thing to me is that. MLB had some sort of you know, pre-draft MRI program because I know he said that before the draft he had an MRI, they had an MRI done on his shoulder and on his elbow, you know, and they came back clean. But I guess that's not actually shown to the teams. That's just like some independent analysis says, yeah, oh yeah, he's clean. Mm-hmm. And so. Because that would make sense is why why you wouldn't just have the teams look at it. Um, I guess, yeah, there's health protections or something, um, confidentiality or something like that. I don't know exactly why, but you would think that would be something where you would just have all the, you know, send it to all 30 teams. They can have their own doctors look at the, at the, at the MRI. You know, it's not like an MRI is some sort of test that somebody needs to go score at the time. It's just an image. You can send it to any doctor. They can look at it and come up with whatever assessment they want. Um, you know, maybe it's just something the Mets wouldn't have been able to see in that situation, but that would have probably saved everybody a lot of time. If you know, Brockers MRIs went out to everybody, the Mets could have said, Oh, wait a minute. We don't like this, but you know, some other team says they're okay with it and they draft him instead. So. Apparently if a player opts out of the pre-draft MRI, so he opted out of the, the league MRI program and had it done independently, but if the player opts out of that, then uh, the team can forego an offer and still receive the pick. They don't have to offer the 40% of the slot value. That's, I guess, a new gotcha. thing. But Which, like, I forget who it was that I saw putting this around earlier, but, I mean, that needs to be adjusted some because 
even at 40%, even he went, went through it and they offered him 40% of slot, like uh, there aren't a lot of guys, particularly in that top 10 range that are going to take that money Yeah, regardless. Um, and it's just screwing over the the young talent like that. It's already going to get screwed over in the next five, six, seven years anyways. Well, yeah. $10,000 a year in the minors and then, you know, league minimum if you're lucky. Right. And then on top of that, he has to go through the draft again. Whereas, I again, I think it was Keith Law or Buster Olney, somebody was on here and was saying that essentially like it should be 80% or the player can then become a free agent at that point. That if they don't sign, you don't get the, you know, at least this much. They don't offer that much. They're a free agent. They don't need to go through the draft again. Like, I don't see any reason to have him go back through that process again. Well, there's that guy that didn't sign with the Braves. Was it last year or the year before? I think he was a high school top 15 pick. He didn't sign. And then uh, he went to Juco and then signed a free agent deal in Japan. He signed like a five-year, $7 million deal and essentially can become a free agent and come back to the U.S. at like 25 or 26 as like a free agent, free agent you know, without having to go through all that stuff he, and he'll end up making more money than he would have, uh, you know, with his signing bonus and then making $2 in the minors. I mean, the only difference is if he came up right, you know, if he went up through the system in like two years, which as a high school pitcher, he wouldn't have, but mm-hmm. you know, if he turned out to be the best pitcher of all time and move extremely through the system, yeah, he could have maybe beaten a little bit, but you know, 99% of pitchers wouldn't. So I mean, I guess they're not going to sign every guy like this, but it wouldn't surprise me to see rocker target something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense. All right. Any other, uh, notable trades that we should talk about anywhere in the league? No, I mean, it was, you don't have to talk about it in too much detail, but I did think it was kind of, Poetically fitting that the Nats and the Cubs both the same week were trading off, you know, key members, beloved members of their World Series title winning teams, the Cubs in 2016, the Nats in 2019, uh, and then ended up playing each other this weekend in a three-game series where uh, I think Juan Soto got and Wilson Contreras probably got, you know, Soto's already used to getting cheers, but I think both of them got even more cheers than they ever do in the past. Uh, it was definitely very funny to see the Cubs fan be like, Wilson Contreras, that's a name I know. Thank <laughs> God he's still here. Where I think those same Cubs fans probably would have been hating Wilson maybe one month ago uh, for not, you know, performing at the plate quite as well as he did in his rookie season since. So. And then it's also then very funny that all three Cubs guys hit home runs in their debut games, uh, Baez, Rizzo, and Bryant. Uh, so I guess that was, they're just, it's just all this whole season for the Cubs has been one very elaborate prank on David Ross. <laughs> I did, I was, uh, I was talking to Lauren about this, and the thing that gets me about the Cubs is, with the Nats, you have a couple of guys who were like high level players and the rest were kind of role players and kind of fit around. But, but you had Rizzo and Bryant and 
I'm missing somebody else off that list. Baez. Um, and then other guys around them. Like, how how were you not competitive in the NL Central? Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Uh, the, the short answer is pitching staff. Um, their only good pitcher was Kyle Hendricks. That's fair. All the rest of them sucked. Uh then then in their bullpen they had Craig Kimbrell. Actually, their bullpen was surprisingly decent. Um, they had Kimbrell and they had a couple too. other guys. To yeah, pair the MVP award uh, vote recipient last year from the guy that accidentally voted for him instead of Trey Turner. Yeah, uh, and what Andrew Chafin or whatever the dude, with the the very Chicago looking guy who got traded yeah. to the A's, uh, I think was also pretty cool. So you know they had an okay bullpen, but I think that was their issue. Is they had. They had a good lineup, they had a good bullpen, and they had no starting pitching whatsoever to speak of. Well, they would have been fine if they spent any money on their team in the last two years on free agents. Yes, that's also true. Um, A lot of it is on the rickets for kind of just letting the team coast and knowing that they can just keep making money hand over fist with the Marquee Sports Network, with all of the fact that they've bought pretty much all of the property around Wrigley stadium at this point and made it, you know, it's held in their hands and they're uh, they've done a lot of redevelopment in the area in terms of taking down your know, neighborhood institutions and rebuilding your know, bigger apartments and office buildings and, and things like that. Try to get more money for themselves. Um, I mean, they've already won the world series. So I think at this point they figure they can go, 30, 40 more years before Cubs fans really start, you know, just completely revolting and not watching anymore. Uh, and so they're just going to try to make as much money as they can. So it's a very unfortunate situation in Chicago. Yeah. All right. I think that is all I had. Anything else you guys want to cover before we get out of here? Uh, no, I think that was pretty thorough. So. Okay. It'll be interesting to see what the Nats do for the next two months. They're still technically in it. I guess that's the other thing we could say. Yeah, they're, they're like going to win, win the division right now. <laughs> they're six and a half games back, so hopefully they'll replace Nats. Uh, can just go on a huge run and, and somehow win this division <laughs> and end up in the playoffs anyways, which would be very fun. Ryan Zimmerman just, just hit a two-run single. Excellent. Well done. He's still here. Ryan Zimmerman is still here as well. For who knows how much longer. So definitely go out to the stadium and embarrass him even further by continuing to just give him giant rounds of applause for doing literally anything. I will came say, out of the dugout. Love it. I was a little disappointed in how few who's came like came out of my mouth when I was reading the lineups over the weekend. I was really oh, yeah. one or two more of like, wait, who the fuck is that? No, it, it was very funny considering all the jokes people were making. Cause it's, oh, the Nats are trading so many players. Like, hey, who, who's going to play for them this year? It's, you know, whatever guy happens to be on South Capitol Street or whatever. It's like they pretty much ran out the same lineup they had run. They had done like Tuesday because Trey Turner was already out on the COVID IL. Daniel Hudson was already out on the COVID IL. Uh, Jan Gomes had just come back from the IL as had uh, Max Scherzer had missed his last start and, you know, just came back to the last second. He's like, most of these guys already were here. Josh Harrison was the only one yeah. missing. 
Yeah, exactly. And, and he was the one that was replaced by Luis Garcia slash Carter Keboom, whichever one you want to declare more replaced him. So, yeah, those are very familiar names. So, it was definitely very funny. Uh, it's like, no, th- this team was already, that's why they're being traded. We were already kind of on this team. I did enjoy the the home runs yesterday from uh, with three homer game by Ortega from the Ortega. Cubs and then yeah two, they got to give that the walk off. But I mean, both of them are you know thirty plus year old. I mean, they're not rookies, but thirty plus yeah. year old guys that have never really gotten a shot. So at least it was fun to watch both of them have their day. Oh yeah, now got to deal with the opposite field walk off bomb was pretty great. Yeah. Um, oh, I guess the one other thing that we have, uh, just a quick aside, very different exits, uh, for Max Scherzer and Trey Turner as to your last memories of them in a Nats uniform, um, Max going off, winning the game. Good to go. No problem. Trey coming off and giving everyone COVID. (laughs) That's why I was more willing to let him go. I was like, yeah, like maybe it's okay if Trey leaves. (laughs) Yeah, and I personally had never I, I like Trey Turner, but I had liked Ian Desmond a lot more. So obviously I was not as ready for whoever replaced Desmond as shortstop. Uh you know, Trey's a, a good player. It seems like a decent person if potentially problematic in some cases. Um he had bad tweets at one point. He was in that golf picture that people like to bring up with uh, a certain former president. Um so, yeah, there, there are some things that definitely kept me from being quite as into Trey. Uh, so, you know, I'm not completely heartbroken, but it was, I did really enjoy that. They, I guess the Dodgers and Padres and whoever else was trying to trade for Max Scherzer wanted the Nats, wanted to actually see Scherzer pitch and make sure he was healthy. Uh, and so luckily we got to have that last, you know, really great game against the Phillies. It was really fun to watch. Uh, and it's very funny that it was a 12 o'clock game. So, and I think they announced Scherzer was going to pitch it like an hour before the game. So all of a sudden everybody was like trying to scramble, working from home, trying to figure out how they could get the game on in the background. Cool. All right. I think, I think that's it. Um, I think we're going to be back here in two weeks and hopefully we will have some, uh, some decent things to talk about with, I mean, these, uh, it probably won't be great baseball to watch, but I do always find these kind of like, eh, we're just going to throw the kids in and let them see what they can do to be fun things to watch. I mean, I'm hoping we're, we come back in two weeks and we'll be talking about Carter Keeboom's first time we hit more than one extra base hit in a week uh, in the major leagues. That, first air that's what I'm looking game. forward to. Ooh. You could also, if you want to do that, I'm, I'm looking towards the offense at this point. I think they could eventually find him somewhere to play on defense, but he has to, he has to hit first. So yeah. Yeah. Hopefully they're only three and a half back by the time in two weeks. Keep, yeah. keep charging. <laughs> All right. Until then, we are ghosts.